0: Well, I first heard Mr. Rickard give his teaching years ago, uh, 96, 97, during my second year at uh, the Master's Seminary, and at that time, I I was uh, not married yet, and I was a financial dunce. Um, So much so, some of you know this, I didn't have a bank account. I kept all my money in in a cash jar behind my desk, (laughs) literally like a peanut butter jar. That's where all my money was. I didn't have a checkbook. I didn't have a credit card. When I got married, I had to get a secured credit card through my wife. And I had to have someone teach me how to write checks because I never wrote checks before. And so sitting in that class that one day, hearing Mr. Rickard teach, I realized uh, there is a direct correlation between my faith and my checkbook. It's not just my Bible, but it's my checkbook that I still don't, didn't have yet, but one day get. A direct correlation between my faith and my financial decisions. And if I'm going to uh, lead my life and my family, and hopefully a church, I need to grow in this area and learn these principles. And uh, I, I greatly benefited from the teachings then. And uh, uh, these aren't just principles that are esoteric principles that are just uh, uh, in our in our minds, but these are principles that we. We have practiced and bore out in our lives and Mr. Ricker and his family as well and, and Bob and Sophie and, and our family as well. and they are tested and tried and true and they work. We just need to apply faith and trust and walk in its steps. So we have a great privilege of hearing from an expert in this field. We are so thankful that he has come to us with his wife to minister us. So let's open our hearts to his instructions and let's give him a warm welcome, Mr. Jim Ricker.
1: It's great to be here. Is this on? Can you hear this? Is okay? All right. It's great to be here. I saw a fellow back here with a UCLA shirt. Where are you? He left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a UCLA basketball fan. How many of you are UCLA? <laughs> well, you shouldn't be laughing after hollering after last night. I mean, you got your <laughs> heads handed to you. I I saw Lou Alcindor in his first game at the Chicago Stadium. He, he was the center, of course, and Bobby Warren was the little guard. And the front page of the Chicago Tribune was Lou Alcindor and Bobby Warren walking down State Street before the game. And here you had this seven-foot guy and this five-foot-ten guard. And it, you talk about Mutt and Jeff. It was it was hilarious. And so I, you don't even know who Lou Alcindor is, do you? <laughs> oh man, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Come on. Oh my goodness. Wow. Anyway, I saw a lot of basketball back in those days, saw that great UCLA run of 10 national championships, and uh, John Wooden spoke at the Masters uh, Athletic Banquet several years, and he would come up and, loves the Lord, and he would give a great testimony and then talk about his years at UCLA and those great teams that he had. and You know, he's just not a very proud man at all. In fact, not a proud man at all. He just gave a little glory all to the Lord and just said he was just fortunate to be able to have a lot of good players that played for him. So, anyway, I thought about that when I saw this young fellow back here with a UCLA shirt on, and I had to go back and harass him just a little bit about last night. You know, (laughs) I am a Michigan fan, but I am a very quiet Michigan fan these days because we're not very good. Well, anyway, thank you for being here. I just really appreciated yesterday and the opportunity. My life is uh, teaching stewardship. That's what I do. And I gave a little testimony yesterday about my background, starting in the automotive industry back in the 60s, early 60s. And I said yesterday my job was that little vent window in the Ford Mustang. My, my responsibility in purchasing was to buy all those component parts and get it assembled and then shipped to the River Rouge plant in Detroit to get put in the, in the Mustang automobile. And, and that's where I cut my teeth on the financial side. And they gave me the Ford Mustang or the uh, Ford uh, uh, Thunderbird. Then they gave me the Lincoln Continental responsibilities and all the rear windows. And uh, that was a fun time. I got to tell you, the automotive industry was a thrilling place to work, really very competitive. And uh, I was threatened with my life if I ever shut down a Ford assembly line. You know, don't you ever run out of windows because if you do, you're gonna, not going to be hung in effigy. You'll be hung. From the nearest rafters. so I mean you already learn, and that's where I sort of cut my teeth. So, a lot of fun, a lot of experiences, and uh, so anyway, that just, that's where this all started, and the Lord gave it the, the uh, ministry to us in 1975, and then full time in '78. So my wife and I, she's here this morning, we travel the country together. She's with me probably about 90% of the time, and we live four months in Ohio, and. In uh, eight months out here, so we can cover the country with this little ministry. We're very involved in the Master's College and Seminary, as James said, and I get to teach there from time to times, and I'm part of the board. And so it's been just a great, great privilege. I love that music this morning. I mean, I really love that music this morning. Very honoring to Christ. Uh, travel with some of us and hear some of the music in churches today. It's it's a little disappointing. It gets a little bit rambunctious, to say the least. And to hear music in a church that honors Christ and to hear you sing it, and it's, it's a thrill. It's a, really a thrill. You know, we hear that at Grace Church and, and you hear it in a church like this and, and the different churches I get into, it's just a real, real thrill. So I really thank you for that. So biblical stewardship. We're going to look at my favorite passages. Uh, James already alerted to it, but I, but I want to go back and read it again and uh, and then take you through this passage and then talk about the three convictions for biblical stewardship that you got in your handout when uh, when you came in in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, let me read through it once again very quickly. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also lamp of the body is the eye therefore your eye is clear or good or healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad or cloudy your whole body will be full of darkness if therefore the light that is in you is darkness how great is that darkness no one can serve two masters for either will hate the one and love the other Or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. You cannot serve God in treasures. You cannot serve God in riches. In other words, you cannot serve money, especially when it controls your life. We talked about this yesterday. You can summarize these six verses like this. You can look at verses 19 and 20. You can say earthly treasures corrupt. If money controls your life, it will eventually corrupt your life. You'll start playing games with money. Misers are not typically honest people because they play games because of their miser mentality. We have seen corruption in this country. We read about it almost every day or hear about it on the news from the highest echelons of government on and down through the banking industry that really pushed this recession to the level that it's in. We've even seen headlines in newspapers of fraud occurring in the Lord's work. Doesn't get any sadder than that. You can look at verses 22 and 23. You can say yearning for earthly treasures could cause you to lose your spiritual vision. You can look at verse 24 and you could say money can even draw you away from any interest in serving Christ if it controls your life. So if you buy into the materialistic mentality of our culture, And the culture has not crept into the church, folks. The culture has bolted into the church big time. But if you buy into the materialistic mentality of the culture, particularly how you view money, it could eventually corrupt your life. The next step, it could draw you away from serving God. It could even cause you to lose your spiritual vision. When you look at verses 19 and 20, it talks here about laying up treasures on earth. Verse 20, verses laying up treasures in heaven. In this text, verse 19, we're commanded not to lay up treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, we're encouraged, you could even say commanded, to lay up treasures in heaven. There's a difference. Treasures on earth are temporary. Treasures on earth have no redeeming value whatsoever. Treasures on earth are the clothes on our back, the homes we live in, the cars we drive, the pension plans we accumulate, none of that has any redeeming value whatsoever. Those are simply tools that God has given us to serve Him with and to enjoy. You came into this world with nothing, you're going to leave it with nothing. Folks, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You are going to leave it all behind. However, treasures in heaven are eternal. So the question you could ask yourself is, what are treasures in heaven? Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Think about it. Nothing precedes us to heaven except people. Nothing will follow us to heaven except people. Everything we do that honors Christ through our life and through our testimony has an impact on people. It's what it's all about. So treasures in heaven are ultimately people. Verses 22 and 23 talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good or clear, your whole body is full of light. If your eye is bad or cloudy, your body will be full of darkness. What's he talking about there? Well, typically we all have two eyes. It's how we understand the things about us. By and large, we enjoy God's beautiful creation through our eyesight. You know, we also have a spiritual eye. It's our heart. And in these two verses, the eye becomes an illustration of the heart. We have a spiritual eye. It's our heart. Our heart is the very eye of our soul. Through our spiritual eye, our heart, God's truth comes to us. And if our heart is dark or cloudy, it may be because we bought into the materialism of the culture. And it's possible that money even controls our life. And like I said yesterday, the motto of many becomes I want what I want. I want it now. I'm even willing to go into debt to get what I want now because money controls their life. And sometimes the clouds are so prevalent in that spiritual eye that the truth of God's Word has a difficult time shining through. But if our spiritual eye, our heart is clear, that means we have a hunger for the things of God. We read His Word. We meditate upon His Word. We memorize His Word. And our passion is to mirror the Word of God to the culture. That's a believer with a clear eye. Verse 24 talks about divided loyalties. You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in riches. You can't have a clear eye and a cloudy eye. You can't have one foot on earth and the other foot in heaven. It compartmentalizes your life. Folks, our lives are not to be compartmentalized. Our lives are a package. It all blends together to glorify the name of Christ. My travels, I'll have businessmen say to me, I go to lunch with them, and occasionally they'll say to me, uh, you know, my business life and my spiritual life are separate. And I'll say, really? Can you show me the text for that? Of course they can't. Then I'll say to them, listen, if your business life doesn't mirror your spiritual life, there's something seriously wrong with your spiritual life. Because you can't compartmentalize it. It's a package, and it all blends together. The key verse here is verse 21. For where your treasure is, or your heart will be also. Listen, folks, where you put your money is where your heart is. How we handle our money is an outward manifestation of what's really going on in our heart and life. That's why it's such an important issue in Scripture. Yesterday I said uh, there's 2,350 verses in the Bible about money and material possessions. So obviously God in his infinite wisdom knew we were going to need a lot of help. And it's here. It's all here. So God knew. He knew all about it. Money is a very important issue. It's why I've given my life to teaching it. In fact, I will make this statement. I think I made it yesterday. After we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, one of the most important issues you're going to have to deal with is how you handle your money. Because that's such an outward manifestation that everybody can see that's really what is important to you. It's the issue. It is. So where you put your money is where your heart is. So the few minutes we have left, let me take you through God's three convictions. Let me show them to you. Let me show you God's financial plan. The outline is in your bulletin. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16.2. And then flip over to Second Corinthians chapter nine verses six through eight. First Corinthians sixteen two. And also Second Corinthians chapter nine verses six through eight. God's financial plan. First Corinthians sixteen two. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. Well, you say, I'm not prosperous. You live in America, you're prosperous. Nobody starves to death in America. Nobody goes without needs being met in America. If you don't believe that, talk to a missionary in a third world country. Look at Haiti. There's poverty. There is real poverty. Many of you, I'm sure, have traveled overseas. You have been to areas of deep poverty. We are the most prosperous people living in the most prosperous country. And what is sad is most Americans take it for granted. Yes, we talked about this yesterday. We're going through a recession. It's a deep recession. It's the longest lasting recession of my lifetime. But you know what? This is the greatest capitalistic story in the history of the world. We will weather this. We will get through this. We are getting through this because we are the strongest capitalistic story in the history of the world. The world needs us. My wife and I were struck, particularly this uh, last fall, driving across the country. We drive out in May or June and then drive back, usually in late September, because of our ministry out there. And for some reason, probably because of the recession, it just sort of captured us that as we drove through Illinois and Iowa and Nebraska, and the miles and miles and miles of cornfields. Many of them you couldn't see where they began and where they ended. Just miles of the same cornfield. You know what that says to you? We feed the world. We feed the world. The world needs our agriculture. The world needs our services, our service industry. The world needs our technology. The world needs America. We are the strongest capitalistic story, and we will continue to be. We will get through this. Dentist. We are getting through it. So don't get caught up in it. what, what James read this morning in, in chapter 6 of Matthew. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Don't hide in the bedroom because we're in a recession. Get on with your life. Glorify the Lord. He's in control anyway. He's in charge. He has a purpose in all of this. Why is he allowing America to go through 38 months of recession? I don't know, but he does. He has his purposes in everything. Trust in that. Trust in that. Like I said yesterday, you gotta go through foreclosure, go through it. You gotta sell your house in a short sale, sell your house in a short sale. You gotta file bankruptcy, file bankruptcy. Get on with your life. Get on with your life, but do it with integrity. Do it with integrity. Do it with what honors Christ. Okay? All right. Be a consistent giver to the Lord's work as God has prospered you. I got a little carried away there. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 through 8. Be a consistent giver as God prospers you and we are all prosperous. Everybody in this room is prosperous. Relative? Yes, but we're all prosperous. Now look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 6 through 8. Now watch this. But this I say, he who sows sparingly or a little bit will also reap sparingly or a little bit. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, or a whole lot. So each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudging of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Very important phrase. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now, when you read these three verses, the question you could ask is what is the blessing or what is the harvest? You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Folks, there are two benefits that accrues to the believer who is a generous giver to the Lord's work. The first benefit is found there in verse 7. It's that little phrase, for God loves a cheerful giver. When you look at verse 7, it starts out, so that each one give as he purposes in his own heart. Giving is always voluntary. We are free to give from a willing heart. It's not casual giving. It should be purposeful giving. You give with no reluctance. It's not what you have to do. There is no pressure. You give because it's in your heart. Giving is always a heart issue. Giving is always a proper motive issue. Tithing can be legalistic if you're not careful. If you come to church and give because you sense you have to give, there is a possibility you could be giving grudgingly. If you ever find yourself giving grudgingly to the Lord's work, you might just as well stick it back in your pocket because you're dishonoring God. That is wrong heart. That is not a generous heart. That is a grudging heart. We don't go there, folks. That's not what the Bible teaches. You realize that phrase for God loves a cheerful giver is not said anywhere else in Scripture. It's only said right here. We know from God's word he loves all people. It's John 3:16. Probably everybody in this room could quote that one. Uh, 1 John 4 tells us that God loves his chosen in a special way. Matthew 5 even tells us that God loves his enemies. Do you realize when you are a cheerful giver to the Lord's work that you are in a special class of people that God loves uniquely? You are uniquely loved by God when you are a cheerful giver to his work. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, you've probably heard this from James, but you know what the Greek word for cheerful is. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's God loves a hilarious giver. You know, it's not the person that comes into this building and sits down in one of the chairs and and they say, oh, you know what, come to Cornerstone, and, you know, they'll sing a few songs, and somebody will pray, and then they'll ask you for your money. You know, they always ask you for your money. No, it's a guy who comes in, sits down in that chair, and he says, oh, another opportunity to give. Another opportunity to give to missions. Another opportunity to give to the needy. Another opportunity to give to my church so I can impact Orange County and America and the world for Christ. Hey, I can do that. I can even double that. That's a hilarious giver. That's a hilarious giver. That's what he's talking about here. You know, there's a second benefit. It's found there in verse 8. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Whom God loves, he lavishes. Now, you got to be careful here. This is not health, wealth, prosperity. This is not name it and claim it. You see counterfeited on television. Those are frauds. Those are counterfeits. Send me your seed money, they say, and your debts will go away. Send me your seed money and you will be healed. By the way, did you read this week that one of the purported healers on television, his wife just filed for divorce? He didn't heal that marriage, did he? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. They're counterfeits. They're counterfeits. They take money from widows. They take money from the poor. Your debts will go away. Now let me ask you a question. When people respond and send in their seed money, and their debts don't go away, and they're not healed, who do they blame? Who do those people blame? They blame God. You know, that's one of the most heinous of crimes. The most heinous of crimes. How would you like to be one of those counterfeits and stand before the Lord someday? Absolutely unbelievable. No, this is not talking about this. This is talking about the abounding grace of god in our heart and life that's what verse eight talks about verse six says you sow bountifully you reap bountifully verse seven says you give cheerfully verse eight says god will prod abounding grace to you give god gives back all grace god gives back so it can do even more it comes back to the heart it comes back to the motive it goes like this if you're generous god will lie to continue to be generous if you're generous you'll receive generosity Probably everybody in this room at one time or another has been in a Bible study or a fellowship class or maybe even a church service, and they've had testimony time. And and you've uh, heard somebody stand up and say, you know, you cannot give God. You cannot give God. Folks, that's not smoke and mirrors. That's what the Bible teaches. That's a sowing and reaping principle. You sow, you reap. Why do you reap? So you can continue to sow. If you're generous, God will allow you to continue to be generous. If you're generous, you receive generosity. Do you realize that God's plan for prosperity rejects hoarding money? That God's plan for prosperity demands that we give it away? Wow. That tests one's very faith, big time. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, you give, God will refill everything. Proverbs 10, God blesses the faithful giver. Proverbs 28, 27, give to the poor you will never want. Isaiah 48:17 and 18, if you would have done what I told you, I would have flooded you. My favorite is Proverbs 11:24 and 25. There is one who scatters yet increases all the more. Then there is one who withholds what is just due but results only more what? Have ever watched the life of a stingy person? They're never satisfied. Enough is never enough. And for sure they can't part with what they have. These verses conclude with this sentence, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. If you're generous, you'll receive generosity. If you're generous, God will lie to continue to be generous. You know, three things happens to a believer who is a generous giver to the Lord's work. Number one, it breaks the chain of selfishness in their life. Generous people are not selfish people. They're generous people. They're not stingy. They're not focused on self. They're focused on others. And number two, it'll humble you. It'll humble you. You know what? When, you've come, when it, comes to your, it comes to your attention that there's someone in need, I mean a genuine need, and you're able to walk up to them and put, their arm around, put your arm around them and say, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to come alongside and help you, and you're able to help them monetarily with their need, that's humbling. That's humbling. That is humbling. What has made America great? We're generous. We're generous. Look at Haiti. Look at Haiti. When all is said and done, add up all the goods and money that all the other countries of the world have given to Haiti, they probably won't exceed just America by itself. That's one thing that makes us great. Yeah, we got a lot of warts. No, no question about it. But we're also a great land. And God has blessed us because of our generosity. God has blessed us because there's still a strong Judeo-Christian influence in this country. God has blessed us because we have protected his chosen people in Israel. You better believe it. You better believe it. Now, is that going to change someday? I don't know. I don't know. God has his purposes, and you just got to rely on that. But we're a very, very blessed people. So it breaks the chain of selfishness in your life. It humbles you. You know what else it does? Places a loose grip on your possessions. Because you know by God's word, from God's word, that he owns it all anyway. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver and the gold is his. He's just loaned it to us to serve him with. That's all. To serve him with and to enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. Now, you've got to be careful. You never give to get. Because that's wrong motive. Because that's wrong motive what you get back may not always be material. may not always be material. He may give you, because the abounding grace of God encompasses our, our very being, he may give you that extra measure of faith when you need it. He may give you the ability to love the unlovable. There's a lot of unlovable people in our culture. My wife and I know of a couple that have been called to Timbuktu, India. I didn't even know there was such a place have two teenage daughters. They're going to leave America and move to India, one of the poorest and unsafe regions of the world. They're getting pressure from the grandparents. How can you take our granddaughters away from us? How can you take our granddaughters out of this culture to that culture? I'll tell you how. God has given that family a burden for those people. God has given that family the ability to love the unlovable. He may give you the ability to show pity. He may give you strength when you're tired. He may give you courage when you just need to stand tall for the things of God. He may give you energy. How about zeal for the Lord's work? How about enlightenment? How about wisdom? All that grace God is able to bestow on those he loves and those he loves uniquely. Folks, we are a privileged people. We are a very, very privileged people. It all comes back to a heart of generosity. That's why it's the number one conviction. It stands all by itself. That's the cornerstone principle for biblical stewardship. It goes like this. If I'm generous, folks, everything flows from there. If my passion is to be generous, I'm dealing with a right heart. And if my passion is to be generous... I'm never going to let credit cards control my life. Because if I find myself where credit cards control my life, I can't be generous. And then I come to church, and James preaches a wonderful expositional message from the Word of God. And he challenges you to respond to a need. And God lays a burden on your heart to respond. And you can't because credit cards control your life. I'll tell you something, folks. I refuse to live there. And so should you. And so should you. That's why stewardship is so important issue. Generosity starts the whole process because the heart is right. And you're dealing with the right heart. Now let's go to the second conviction. Number two, learn to be content. Flip back with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, this issue of biblical contentment. One of the strongest worded exhortations in Scripture, by the way, is this issue of contentment. We just read about it. You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in treasures. You can't serve God in riches. That's a very strong statement. That's an exhortation on commitment, on contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Biblical definition of contentment is synonymous with obedience. Contentment is synonymous with obedience and a preoccupation with the well-being of others. Contentment has nothing to do with self. When one gets focused on self, that's discontentment. Contentment is an eye off of self and on others. That's biblical contentment. Now, there's an enemy of contentment called materialism, and I defined this yesterday. Let me define it for you. Materialism is not having nice things. Materialism is your attitude towards having nice things. Nothing wrong living in a nice home. Nothing wrong with accumulating a pension plan. Nothing wrong with wearing nice clothes. Nothing wrong with driving a nice car. That's not materialism. Materialism is your attitude towards all of that. You can be poor and be materialistic because you covet things you don't have. Like I said yesterday, you live in a nicer home than I do. Enjoy it. You and your spouse can go to Hawaii on your anniversary. Wish my wife and I could join you. You drive a better car than I do. Let me borrow it once in a while. It's not materialism. It's a bad attitude, Is materialism. The more prosperous we are, the more generous we should be. That's the issue. That's always the issue. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. James just read about that. Now look at verse 9. But, it says, however... Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Money will eventually con- corrupt your life. This kind of a person in verse 9 is compulsive. This person is greedy, and they will probably eventually lose their integrity. Now look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money, it's the love of it. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Let me show you two prime examples of materialism in the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Mark. These are great examples of materialism. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Look at this. Verses 17 to 22. Story of the rich young ruler. You've read it many times. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Those are the words of a proud hypocrite. No way had he kept all those things from his youth. Nobody could. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. Now look at verse 22. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I like to read verse 22 like this. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for his great possessions had him. His great possessions had him. Materialism. Materialism controlled his life. Flip over to Luke chapter 9. Look at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 60. Watch this one. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bear their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, when I was a youngster, and I can remember reading that text, and I used to remember thinking to myself, Boy, that sounds a little harsh. Lord, he just wanted to go and bury his father. That's not what was going on here. This guy's dad was not dead. In these Bible times, the phrase, I must bury my father, was a common figure of speech, meaning let me wait until I receive my inheritance. What this guy was saying to the Lord was, Lord, I'm not going to follow you now because I want to go and be with my father so that when he dies, I'm sure to get my inheritance. I want to get my cut. Gross materialism. Gross materialism. You know, it's not the high cost of living that gets us. It's living high. It's not how much you make, that's how well you want to live. It's not how much you make, that's how well you want to live. Pretty basic, really. And every one of us in this room, every once in a while needs to look in the mirror and say, do I need all this stuff? Do I need all these toys? Do I need all these things? You know, I spoke in... uh, Rolling Meadows, Illinois, Chicago, a few years ago, Harvest Bible Chapel. And picked me up at the airport, Chicago Hair on Friday, took me to this home of this elderly couple, I'd say late 80s. And uh, walked into this house where I was going to stay for the weekend, and I I have never seen so many antiques in one home in all my life. It was room-to-room, wall-to-wall, floor-to-floor antiques. The walls were lined with antique clocks. Never forget it. In fact, I took some pictures. I was so enamored by it. Got up Saturday morning for breakfast. to sit sitting at the dining room table, and I say to this couple, uh, lots of antiques. Oh, yes, we have bought and collected antiques our whole married life. In fact, they said, probably everything you've seen in this house is an antique. And I thought to myself, including the couple I'm sitting with, but I, I didn't say that. <laughs> and I said, um, what are you going to do with all these antiques? Got to be a lot of money here. Yeah, there, there is. They said, what are you going to do with all these antiques? And I, I didn't get an answer. I said, do you mind if I project what I think is going to happen to these antiques? Now they're getting just a little nervous. I said, how many kids you got? Three. How many grandkids you got? Six. I said, okay. Down the road, the Lord's going to call the two of you into his presence. And I'm thinking, not too far down the road, but I didn't go there either. And you're probably going to leave all these antiques to your three kids. Is that fair? They said, yes, we have a trust. We've already made that provision. I said, okay. Now you're with the Lord. And your three kids have all these antiques, probably in storage. Yeah, that's probably true. So now let's fast forward another 40, 50 years. Lord calls your three kids and their spouses into his presence, and these antiques end up with these six grandkids. Fair? They said, Yeah, that's probably fair. I said, So now, 50 years from now, your six grandkids and their spouses are together for a holiday. And they're sitting around a fire in Chicago because it's 20 below, and they're talking about reminiscing, and they reminiscing about mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, and one of the kids finally says, Hey! You know all these antiques we got in storage? Yeah, it's a bunch of junk. Let's have a garage sale. 30 cents on a dollar. I'm sure that couple regrets today. I stayed at that home. Come on, folks. What are we talking about here? It's stuff. Has no eternal value whatsoever. And missionaries can't get to the mission field. And churches go begging to meet the needs of people and to have ministry. And, and, and we have this junk. It's junk. What's the point? You're very quiet. Must be a lot of junk in this church. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Let me fast forward. When you travel, as much of us do, some things, sometimes things happen. Monday morning I take me back to Chicago Air Airport, and I walk up to American Airlines and get my boarding pass. American Airlines has lost me. I appear nowhere on the radar screen. And I said, you know what? I I don't quite understand. You brought me out here on Friday from LAX. And I assume I was scheduled to go back. That's what my ticket says. Here's a copy of it. Uh, They said, well, we had a computer breakdown. I said, Okay, fine. Just give me a seat. Well, coach is full. There's no seats on the plane. Well, there's one empty seat in first class. I said, great. bump me up at your expense. And they did. I go in uh, the, the, the terminal and, I, and into the uh, airplane. I sit down the first class seat, and the seat next to me is empty. Just before they close the cabin, guy comes in. And he sits down next to me. and I'm reading a USA Today sports page, and I'm reading about golf. And he leaned over and he's Tiger won. I said, Yeah, he did. And he said to me, Now we're in the air. He says to me, Do you play golf? I said, Yeah, I play golf. I said, How about you? He said, uh, Yeah, I play a little golf. And I said uh, to him, What do you do for a living? He said, I'm in the movie industry. And I said, really? I said, are you making a living? He said, yeah, I'm surviving. So then a little while later, he says, what do you do for a living? So I told him, and he was really interested in my ministry. So he wanted to talk about my ministry. So we talked, landed LAX, pulled up to the gate. Just before they opened the cabin door, the stewardess says to us guys in first class, just remain seated just for a couple seconds. She came back and escorts this guy off the plane, my first clue. I get up to leave, and the guy across the aisle from me, he says to me, don't you know who that was? And I said, No. He says that was Tom Cruise. (laughs) So I said, Who is Tom Cruise? (laughs) I had no clue. I know now, okay? I know now. My kids say, Dad, quit telling that story. That's an embarrassment to the family. I'm surviving. What does he make? $25 million a film? I'm flying on his airplane, right? What was amazing is he talked about the Lord. He's Church of Scientology, I found out. I I didn't know that. I didn't know who he was. And he just, vivacious. He talked nonstop. So as we're getting off, they're all laughing in first class, because they were (laughs) eavesdropping. And they said, we didn't bother you, because we knew you didn't know who he was. (laughs) He said, we also knew that he knew you didn't know who he was. (laughs) Some of the guys at Grace Church work in the movie sets. They build the movie sets. They're contractors. And so he, they're trying to get me an audience with him. I would love to meet with him again just, just to talk to him about Scientology. I don't know if I'll ever get that chance. But, yeah, sometimes when you travel, things do happen. so and that has nothing to do with my message, nothing, <laughs> nothing whatsoever. <laughs> it's not how much you make. It's how well you want to live. Go back to your handout. Buy a modest home, buy a modest home. My wife and I know a couple, a couple years ago, they had a three-bedroom home, son and a daughter. Both kids got married, moved back to the Midwest with their spouses. They had the three-bedroom home and a $450 a month mortgage. Pretty good out here. They'd owned the home for 22 years. Came into the next fall, the nest is empty. And they decided to buy their dream home. So they sold their three-bedroom home and bought a four-bedroom home with a swimming pool. I know them well. Neither one of them swim. <laughs> they exchanged a $450-a-month a mortgage. You'll understand this. For an $1,850-a-month mortgage, they lost $14 a month in cash flow. Came to my office three months later because now they're struggling a little bit. And I said, you know, your elevator doesn't go to the top floor. You have to be at least a couple of quarts low. What in the world were you thinking? It's ego. It's ego. It's not how much you make. It's how well you want to live. Buy cars that meet your needs. Pay your bills on time. Is it a need, a want, or a desire? Like I said yesterday, I need a car, I want a Cadillac, I desire a Mercedes. It's the issue. It comes back to the heart. It always comes back to the heart. Number three. Guard your integrity. Flip back to Proverbs. Guard your integrity. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things does the Lord hate. These seven are an abomination unto him. That's strong language. Proud look, that's deceit. Lying tongue, that's deceit. Hands that shed innocent blood. How about hands that destroy innocent reputations? A heart that devises wicked schemes. You know, if money controls your life, you're a schemer. money controls your life, you're a schemer. You know, God hates that form of behavior. Feet that are swift in running to evil or mischief, a false witness who speaks lies, one who sows discord among brethren. You come to me with gossip on another brother or sister in life. When you get done, tell me what you tell me. I'm going to respond to you like this. I'm going to say to you, now listen, you need to understand something. I'm going to go to the person who told me that about. I'm going to tell them what you told me, and I'm going to tell them who told me. you got to hear the breaks going on. You know what? Up there in New Hall, I'm out of the loop. They won't tell me that stuff. You know why? They know exactly what I'll do with it. So should you. Someone comes to you with gossip about another brother and sister in Christ. Hey, wait a minute here. You wait a minute here. I'm going to go to the person you told me that about. I'm going to tell them what you told me. I'm going to tell them who told me. I'm going to find out what's going on here. If they don't repent of it, you know what the Bible says? Confront them with a witness. Matthew 18 says if they don't repent of it, then you know what it says? Tell it to the church. (laughs) If they don't repent of it, then you know what the Bible says? Discipline them out of the church. Sometimes it's called blessed subtraction. You're sending a message. You bring a reproach on the name of Christ. You bring a reproach on the church. You bring a reproach on your family, and you're unrepentant. There are big biblical consequences. It's back to the heart. always does. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness and vast revenues without righteousness or justice. One who has vast revenues without righteousness is a rule breaker. One who bends the rules. Ever bend the rules on your tax returns? Ever taken a a discount you're not entitled to? After church this morning, guys, you take your wives out to dinner and she gets an all-you-can-eat salad bar and you get a sandwich and you mooch off her salad bar? Whoa, a little quiet here, huh? Getting a little personal now, huh? Stealing food from that restaurant. Folks, we don't do that. We buy two can We don't buy one. Come on. We're Christians. We have a testimony to maintain. Chapter 19, verse 5. I, I, I find out how you're really quiet here. What in the world? <laughs> <laughs> every head bowed, every eye closed. Confession time, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> chapter nineteen, verse one. Better the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. A perverse person is a boaster, a bracket self-willed, proud, egotistical, knows all the answers. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind is made up. Look at chapter twenty, verse seven. This is my favorite. Righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Hey, mom and dad, grandmas and grandpas, you want to raise kids and grandkids of integrity? How about being models of integrity? What goes on in the privacy of your life that nobody sees but your kids see? Are you consistent all of the time? Mom and dad, this culture is after the hearts and minds of your kids. And what's scary is they're getting access to the hearts and minds of your kids? And a lot of it comes from the music industry. Mom and Dad, your youngster goes into the secular music store today unsupervised and buys a secular CD and brings it into your home, walks into their bedroom and shuts the door. You know what just might have occurred under your nose in your home? Your youngster might have just plugged into the subculture of this country. And they did it under your nose, and you're not even aware of it. The consequences of that can be absolutely deadly. This culture is after the hearts and minds of our kids and what scares are getting access to them, even in the church. It's time to say enough is enough. We need to get back to the basis of the Word of God and how we make choices and decisions. We need to hold those kids accountable. You have a biblical responsibility to hold your kids accountable to what they're listening to and what they're watching. I've said that in a church, said it a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. A couple came up to me and said, we don't have a right to do that. I said, you don't what? You're telling that to the wrong guy. You don't have a right to hold your, how old are your kids? 12, 12 and 14. Oh, really? You're telling me you don't have a right to hold those kids accountable to what they're listening to and what they're watching? Unbelievable. Well, they'll be held accountable for that someday. Be held accountable for that someday. I'm glad my kids are grown. Some judge would have told me I can't spank my kids. I'd have probably spanked them in front of the judge. <laughs> I'd be in ministry with Chuck Colson today. <laughs> That's prison ministry, in case you don't know. <laughs> Generosity, contentment, and integrity. Let's put it together. If I'm generous, everything flows from there. If I'm generous, it's because I'm content. And if I'm generous and I'm content, of course I'm a person of integrity. I want to honor Christ. I want to live by his word. Yeah, that's it. Those are the principles for biblical stewardship. We live those, then we put it to work. That's what we did yesterday. We put it to work, we put it into practice. Now, let me really get practical. Let me summarize this by getting practical. Summarize a little bit of what we did yesterday. Have a budget. Let's live it now. Have a budget. I don't care how old you are. Like I said yesterday, I don't care how young you are. I don't care how prosperous you are. I don't care how poor you are. Stewardship says I know where my money goes. Number two, get out of debt. Get out of debt. Now there's good debt and bad debt. We talked about this yesterday. Good debt, you buy a home, you have a mortgage. That's an obligation. You have a monthly payment. Nothing wrong with that. If You can't make your monthly payment, you have no minutes buying that home. You had no business borrowing that money. That's what happens in this recession. Bad debt is credit card debt. It goes beyond the grace period. Credit cards are great tools. They're terrible masters. I'm not anti-credit cards. You heard this yesterday. Credit cards, credit cards are a great tool. They can also be a master because they can control your life. That's the danger of them. So you control your credit card use. <coughs> Have a budget, get out of debt, control your credit card use. Have a will and a trust. We covered that yesterday. (coughs) Now, let me really get practical here. If you can't afford to pay for it now, you probably can't afford it. Be afraid of credit cards. Be afraid of them. In other words, respect them. Respect them. Number two, I said this yesterday. Learn to procrastinate on discretionary spending. Procrastinate on discretionary spending. What does that mean? Get the emotion out of your life. Get the emotion out of your life. Walk away from the store. Walk around the block. Walk around the mall. <coughs> the minute you walk away from the store, you've taken the emotion out of it. Number three, buy a home, not a castle. I tell youngsters today, <coughs> excuse me, I said yesterday, my new hall is Smogsville, USA. My my lungs are used to seeing what I breathe. Truth of the matter is, in 1986, I hunted in 40 below weather in Montana, and I frostbit my vocal cords because I didn't wear any protection. Nobody told me to. So they said, you'll have a cough the rest of your life, and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's what's really going on. Buy a home, not a castle. You're not hunters, right? Oh, brother, man, I'm telling you, (laughs) I'm losing big time. You're sharing the the uh, salad bar, and <laughs> you're not hunters. Uh, what is this, PETA International? <laughs> oh, my. I spoke, I did a deal in uh, San Diego the month before Y2K hit. And, you know, the rumors of that thing was horrendous. And I week before I got there, the guy in the church, he spoke on the dangers of Y2K. He even made a comment. The the Lord is going to usher in the tribulation through Y2K. Store up water, store up food, banks aren't going to function, elevators aren't going to go up and down. I mean, he—he was. planes are not going to be safe. I mean, he did the big, and I didn't know this, and he was a good friend of mine, was. (laughs) I came in that weekend, and Sunday morning I did my stuff, and Sunday night I thought I'd do a deal on environmentalism. I took it to some text and I hit it and <laughs> I had no idea this guy spot. I said, elevators don't know what year it is. Get that? How can elevators not go up and down when it becomes the year two thousand? They don't know what year it is. They have no clue. I said, Nothing is gonna happen. Nothing. And you environmentalists, go to Revelation chapter six. Man is not gonna destroy this planet. Only God is. Only God is. So anyway, I'm paraphrasing. Get done. I said, okay, bottom line, step on the grass and shoot a deer. <laughs> <laughs> man, it got really quiet and that kind of noise. I'll tell you what. I think I was pretty good until I got up to that last statement. <laughs> step on the grass and shoot a deer. <laughs> oh, man. Buy a home, not a castle. Buy a home with a lawn. <laughs> Seriously. You go to buy a home, they're going to qualify you. You're going to afford to make a $2,000 a month payment. That's how they qualify you. It's like when you go to buy a car. How much can you afford a month? And we'll fit you into that car. Oh, but you know what? For another 50 bucks, here's what you get on that car. You get all this, these bells and whistles. And how about taking it for a ride? And you take it for a ride, 80% of the car's been sold. The deal is done. They know that. So you qualify you for $2,000 a month. I tell people today, only commit to 75% of that. If you qualify for $2,000 a month, only buy a home that's going to cost you $1,500 a month because you want to play with that cash flow. You don't want to go to the limit. It's just going to strain your budget. It's going to put you under pressure you don't want to be under. So you protect that. That's how you do that. And number four, have an emergency fund. Be afraid of credit cards. Learn to procrastinate on discretionary purchases. Buy a home, not a castle. Have an emergency fund. That's how you put it to work, guys, folks, girls, ladies. That's how you do it. It's not rocket science. It's discipline. It's discipline. Stewardship says, I know where my money goes. And I want to tell you, my wife is here. We've been married for 46 years. And like I told the folks yesterday, we've had a wonderful marriage. And I'll tell you, it's because we both know Jesus Christ—that's for sure. Secondly, we've lived stewardship principles. If I didn't live it, I couldn't teach it. That would be hypocritical. We've lived these principles, and I'll tell you—talk you about the freedom it's given us to serve Christ, be involved in His work and His causes—and wow, wow, what a great age this, this thing we're going through! We'll talk about in the Q&A session a little bit. This thing we're going through is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call. You're in the front end of your life, most of you. What a great experience you're going through right now. This recession is great for you. It is good for you. Because you're learning a lot of what not to do. And you need to remember it. Because most Americans won't. They'll forget it. When we get through this thing and we get pumping again and the economy gets pumping again, lenders are going to lend money they shouldn't lend, borrowers are going to borrow money they shouldn't borrow, and we'll go through another cycle. Well, you should know better because you're seeing it. There's a lot of brain power in here, a lot of common sense in here, and you want to serve the Lord. That's what should drive you. That's what would drive you. Not ego. Not ego. Not self. Not discontentment. Generosity, contentment, integrity. That's what should drive you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these principles that are so clear in your word. Thank you for sending your son that we could have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. What a privileged people we are. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be men and women of unimpeachable integrity in all that we say and all that we do, and particularly in how we handle our money. Thank you for this church, for its testimony, for its leadership, for men like James who love you and preach your word faithfully. Like I said, God, help us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Well, thank you, Mr. Rickard, for ministering to us uh, uh, God's Word this, this morning. And um, the pressing decisions that we are faced with every day are more wisdom issues, not moral issues. And if anything, we lack wisdom on how to make decisions on these key areas of our lives. So let's uh, take to heart what we learned this morning and apply faith, um, not just uh, Resolutions to do better, but to trust in the Lord, especially around Matthew 6, that He is sovereign, that He cares for us, and that worry is a reflection of unbelief, we have little faith. Let's trust in the Lord, and as we do so, He'll bear fruits in in our lives in this area all to His glory. Uh, Let's converse around this during our break time, we'll gather around our second hour for Q&A, but let's... uh, Stand together and close our time with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we uh, do thank you for this timely teaching this morning, Uh, especially in this uh, economic climate. There's a lot of uncertainty in our hearts and in this world, but Lord, your, your scriptures remind us that you are sovereign, you are in control. And uh, we are your children, and you will care for us. What, is, uh, what you ask of us is to probe our hearts, so that in our innermost being, that there will be faith, that there be a humble reliance, that there will be a deep trust in you and your providence. So Lord, we pray that our faith in you be reflected in the decisions that we make, so that as uh, Christians individually and as a corporate body of Christ, we will reflect that faith and, and our hope in You and bring glory to Your name. We thank You so much for this time and uh, we commit rest of the day unto You and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.